0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Leslie Kamenoff. Leslie is a yoga educator with more than 30 years' experience in the fields of yoga and breath anatomy. He's the founder of The Breathing Project, a New York City nonprofit dedicated to teaching the principles of individualized breath-centered yoga. Leslie Kamenoff is the co-author of Yoga Anatomy and with Sounds True, a program called Freeing the Breath, health, relaxation, and clarity through better breathing, where he helps listeners become liberated from dysfunctional breathing patterns and opens them to new levels of health and well-being. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Leslie and I spoke about various misconceptions about better breathing, surrender, and what it might feel like to be breathed. We talked about a breath. Coon, and the power of attending to the exhale and allowing the inhale to take care of itself. Finally, we talked about the relationship between emotions and the breath, and what it feels like in the body to take a beautiful breath. Here's my conversation. It's all in the breath with Leslie Kaminoff. Leslie, you're an expert on breathing. And what I'm curious about to begin is somebody comes to you and they say, I know I could have better health if my breathing was better. I feel it. I can sense that I'm tense sometimes, that sometimes my breathing is shallow. I don't have a lot of time to work on this to make any big changes in my life, but help me. What would you suggest?
1: Okay, well, first of all, the word expert is a kind of a scary word. Um, you know, uh I, I'm very interested in breathing and its relationship to to health and well-being, and uh, and also the specifics of yoga practice and and how it affects the mechanics of what we're trying to do in yoga. So those are the sort of things I've been looking into for the last uh, thirty or so years. But you know, I would I would really hesitate to use the word expert. Um, and uh, to go to the the scenario you suggested, um, that does happen. Uh, where people come in specifically saying, okay, I'm aware that I have a a breathing issue. You know, they could be suffering from asthma or some sort of um, uh, panic disorder or some stress-related thing that makes them aware of their breathing and and looking for help specifically with that. Um, But I should also point out that the majority of people who, who come in have a variety of other complaints that they don't recognize have anything to do with the breathing and I consider it to be part of my job as an educator to to point out the connection. So um but to go back to the scenario you you suggested, uh you know, what would I say to someone like that who said uh, okay, you've got one shot, you've got one hour, my my breathing's broken, how can how can we fix it? I mean, is that a fair summary of
0: <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, um they would probably end up uh, on my table with, with my hand in their solar plexus uh, in pretty short order, and uh, you know we would just take it from there. Uh, There's a whole conversation ensues when um, I sort of uh, feel around in that space and see uh, how reactive they are to various uh, you know angles and degrees of uh, pressure and in different locations. Um, and what frequently happens is that I'll be having one conversation with them, but my hand will be having a whole other conversation with a whole other part of them, and uh, during the course of the the time we spend doing that, the two conversations come together uh, and we start talking about um, the uh, sort of whole level of reactivity that that we have on an unconscious level, that that governs the patterns of breath and, and how they came to be and uh, what function they may have served earlier on in life and are not serving so well now. Because, you know, any kind of dysfunctional breathing someone comes in with, uh, you know, you have to go back to a point in their lives sometimes where that actually was functional, where it was doing something valuable for them. Uh, and you can't just hit the off switch and expect it to go away. You, you have to, you know, figure out how they can feel safe or protected or or in some way um, in control of their lives without the breathing doing it for them.
0: So let's look at what some classic patterns might be from childhood, that somebody developed a breathing pattern. As you said, it was effective then, but it's no longer effective now. Could you give me some examples of what some of those patterns might be like, why somebody developed it, and then how they would let it go at this point?
1: and the the one I'll speak about is, is the one I most often speak about, which is pretty much universal for for everybody uh and and that is uh something we learn pretty much in our first day uh in diapers, which is you know our first day uh and and you know we're we're it's a very eventful day when we're born you know we 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 breathe for the first time our entire circulatory system reverses itself uh we start we start taking in nutrition through our mouths for the first time. Um, and, you know, when we've taken enough in uh, of this new pathway that the nutrition is coming through, uh, we get full, and what we don't know uh, coming in to this process is that if we squeeze in and push down, that feeling of fullness, that pain will go away. What we we do know is that it hurts, and we cry, and uh, that process of crying actually does fire up the um, uh, very rapidly developing uh, respiratory system, which has only recently begun to, to to really oxygenate our bodies, uh, and this this pumping that goes on with the crying eventually leads to a squeezing in and a pushing down, which gets rid of the pain, you know. And we wire that up very early. That if we have something uncomfortable going on inside of us in our gut in particular, that if we squeeze in and push down, the pain will go away. And it works perfectly well for, for pee and poo. Um, it doesn't work so well for some of the other things that arise later on in life that create uh, some discomfort in our gut, yet we still keep trying to do the thing we first learned to do, which is to squeeze in and push down. and And that's the pattern I'm having a conversation with when I put my hand in someone's solar plexus, You know, uh, it may be a little uncomfortable, and they react to it. And if they, you know, squeeze in and tighten, there's this message that, okay, this uncomfortable thing will go away, except when the discomfort is being caused by that very pattern, and then something new needs to arise. So that's kind of a universal thing that people come in with, for the most part. We all have that to a certain degree. And uh, I relate that pattern to um, this yoga concept uh, that comes to us from, from some of these teachings that that calls this the Brahma Granti. This is the knot of Brahma. This is the knot of tension that occupies our central space in our system that uh, prevents uh, our, the forces of inhale and exhale from having a healthy relationship because it clogs up the space where that relationship can occur. Uh, and you know, there are some of the more esoteric teachings that relate to this concept, but they're very simple and they're very ancient. Uh, and, and and but it 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 goes back to that primary knot of tension we tie in our systems that you know we use early on in life to relieve ourselves of uh internal discomfort.
0: Okay, so let's talk more about this knot because this is very interesting to me. Would this knot naturally unravel itself or does it only unravel itself if we consciously engage in yogic training or breath training?
1: Well, I think there's a variety of ways that people experience this unraveling. You know, one of the great teachings of yoga is that we are multi-dimensional beings, and uh, anything that affects us on any of our levels can create uh, a shift in any of the other levels. Um, I'm not speaking here about the the famous Panchamaya model that comes to us from the Upanishads that talks about these five dimensions of being, starting with the physical and going to the breath and to the mind and senses and you know, the deeper personality and uh, all of that. And uh, so I would say that um, one of the great ways to become aware of this tension that we hold is through yoga practice, but it's certainly not the the only way. You know, you can have a, um, uh, you can read something in a book uh, that you take in on more of a conceptual level that causes you to reassess uh, your fundamental relationship with universe you inhabit. And that can create a profound change in your breathing and in your body and in every system that you have. So uh, there's no uh, set way for it to happen. We just know that, uh, in general, what human growth requires in a spiritual sense. And when I say spirit, I mean it in its original context of having to do with the breath. Uh, Most people know that the, the word for spirit, spiritus, really is the same route for respiration, for breath. Um, you know, to, to have this, uh, uh, this spiritual unfolding, uh, we need to overcome some of the earlier habits we developed in life that we use uh, for our survival. Um, and we find at some point in our lives that those survival strategies are getting in the way of living fully. And this is the human condition. This is what we all face. And, and that, to me, is what spiritual growth is. Uh, it doesn't have to be religious or even yogic. Uh, it just It's just what we need to do to live fully. We have to overcome what we originally learned how to do in order to survive.
0: So let's say, Leslie, that I want to take a breath training approach with you to try to unravel this not in the gut cuz i think a lot of people can relate to that that they have something in their gut that feels somehow like it's a fist or some kind of clenching that is in fact affecting the smooth free flow of breath
1: or the second brain trying to talk to them and they've you know been systematically uh, trying not to listen their whole lives you know you ever have a gut level instinct you ignored and you know, later on find out you wish you hadn't yes so. <laughs> So, you know, it's not necessarily about getting rid of something that's there. It's not that there's something there that needs to be eliminated. That's the, that's the illusion, really. Because originally there was. There was a big load of poo, you know. Uh, and when you get rid of it, you feel better. It, 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 so it's not a thing. The brahma, the not, the brahma granti isn't a thing. Um, it's, it's an obstruction that consists of uh, an accumulated uh, set of habits, of habituated patterns that we've learned to do now now, needless to say in some extreme cases it can turn into physical manifestation like scar tissue adhesions that sort of thing uh, but for the most part uh, it's more like becoming more sensitive to the messages we're getting from there because the not really is what we what we learn how to do to not hear what's happening you know to not listen to it uh, so I just want to you know sort of correct this idea that there may be something in there. It, it certainly feels that way for a lot of people, but um, it, it, it's it's not a thing.
0: Uh-huh, yes, that's helpful. But okay, there's this sense of an obstruction in the gut. How do I work with that through breath training?
1: Well, um, let me just say something about breath training in general. Sure. Um, that there's... A, There's a term we have in in yoga for for breath training. It's called pranayama. Um, And uh, it's commonly translated as uh, breath control because uh, it seems obvious that it divides very neatly into two words, prana, which means something like breath or life force, and yama, which most people are familiar with as the first step of raja yoga, which means a, a restraint or a control. The yamas are the things that you don't do. You know, you don't harm, you don't steal, you don't covet things like that. Um, but uh, from my teaching tradition, that of my teacher uh, Desikachar and his father Krishnamacharya, um, uh, Krishnamacharya was was uh, among other things, uh, you know, a grammarian and uh, a scholar uh, of a very high order. And he used to divide words a little differently than they were commonly divided. And what he would remind us is that. It's prana ayama. There's a long a there. The, the word is actually pranayama. And ayama is the opposite of yama. In Sanskrit, when you put a in front of a term, it reverses its meaning. So if yama is something like restraint or control. Ayama is something like removing constraints or extending or lengthening or opening or unobstructing rather than controlling. So, uh, Both views are necessary for what we call breath training. I think we tend to overdo the control side, though, um, because, you know, that's the obvious thing. The obvious thing we're working with when we learn to do yoga or breathing exercises or anything else that involves conscious breath training is we we start getting a little more control over our breathing, but that's only half the picture. You know, our breathing is, is voluntary, to be sure, but the amount of voluntary control we have over our breath is quite limited it's also an involuntary action and thank goodness it is otherwise you'd fall asleep and you'd suffocate you know so to have a relationship with the the aspect of our breathing over which we do not have control is in my view the most important aspect of, of what I help people uh, do and and so the very word training uh, you know tends to that mode of control and exercises and ratios and you know all these manipulations we can we can do with the breath Um, what I frequently find myself pointing out to people when when they realize this is that you know it's really hard work to not work so hard you know once you start unconstraining the breath and realizing all the control you've already been imposing on it it takes a lot of focus it takes a lot of attention what you're doing to not do that. Uh, So I would, I would say, I would use the word training very cautiously when it relates to the breath. so as not to uh, overemphasize uh, the side of it that I think uh, most people get hung up in.
0: Okay. Now I'm very interested in what a beautiful full breath that really changes the shape. You would say to somebody on the table, oh, what a beautiful breath.
1: Well, what am I seeing when I Yeah, that?
0: how does their abdominal cavity appear? What's the movement like, and what's the thoracic cavity appear? What's well, the, the abdominal movement?
1: thoracic cavities don't even show up as separate cavities in a released breath because it's, it seems to be happening everywhere at once. Um, it's, it's very three-dimensional. The diaphragm is a very three-dimensional muscle, and its action on changing the shape of both cavities is very three dimensional um, you know you, you know it when you see it and and you and you know it when you feel it because it feels very different. It feels like you're getting and it looks like the person is getting an enormously greater uh quality of shape change with tremendously less effort you know uh it feels like you're working. One tenth is hard to get ten times more breath. That's the experience uh, of the person feeling it, and that's what it looks like when you're seeing it. Um, and it really, you know, it, the, the assumption here is the person is lying, you know, supine on my table. Uh, but this can happen in any position, um, you know, because gravity and and the shape of your body will affect, of course, the relationship of the cavities and and. The pattern of shape change there's no one right way to breathe or one pattern you want to be seeing but it's a quality really that uh, is, is is vastly different um, it's less labored uh, there's obviously less energy being expended uh, there's less extraneous muscle contraction around the neck uh, or the shoulders or the chest um, the sound of it is different it feels like the pathway through which the breath is moving has become un, become unobstructed uh, and less controlled, uh, and if there's a corresponding shift in um, uh, uh, skin uh, color and um, you know the 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 person's um, facial expression will change. Uh, it's almost like. Uh, Sometimes when people lie down on the table, it looks like their body is lying down, but their breath is still standing up. So the best way I can describe it is it looks like all of them has finally become horizontal. Um, uh, so those are some of the descriptors, I would I would say, for for that shift.
0: Now, as people are listening, I want to make sure that they're tracking with you about what this breath might be like where you don't even feel anymore, the distinction between the abdominal cavity and the thoracic cavity. So can you help us a little bit understand, first of all, how would you recommend someone tuning in to what you're describing here?
1: For some people, uh, certain visualizations are very useful. You know, uh, Even uh, just visualizing a sphere in your mind, a three-dimensional spherical uh, image uh, can free you up from certain breathing patterns. It can free you up from, from certain thought patterns.
0: Now, what do you mean by that? I'm visualizing my belly as a three-dimensional sphere?
1: No, even no, just visualizing a sphere. Just see it hanging in front of your, you know, close your eyes and see it hanging in front of your, your head in space, okay, and make it uh, very real. Let it be any color you want it to be. Let it be a little translucent, you know, so you can see all the surfaces at once. In other words, you can see the back of it through the front, you know, so it's like a bubble, or a balloon or something like that. and then How you to, big is it? Uh, as big as you want it to be. I don't care. Okay. As long as it's an image of a three-dimensional spherical object and you can see it as a sphere, not just a flat circle, but a sphere. And, and then just picture it growing bigger and smaller. That's all you have to do. Okay. Now, eventually what you'll notice is that you, you have a, a tendency to want to make that rhythm of the sphere changing shape coincide with your own breath. And sometimes people feel that their body is the sphere or the sphere enters their body or their body enters the sphere. We're very open-ended with these with these things. We, you know, we try to let the visualization go wherever it wants to go, so long as you have the elements of number one, a three-dimensional sphere being visualized, and that it's changing its shape in the rhythm of the breath. And the reason this works is that it shifts your hemispheric dominance from your left brain towards your right hemisphere. You know, whenever we're doing, you know, manipulation of the breath, like that counting with a ratio or whatever, you know, it's a very sequential, uh, it's a time sequence thing, this, then this, then this. Also, these methods of, you know, controlling the shape change, like inhaling, in such a way that you feel an expansion from the top towards the bottom of your system, or making the exhale a contraction from the bottom towards the top. It's kind of a linear sequential thing, which is very, very useful. And we tend to use our left hemisphere to manage these sorts of of things. It also, you know, is the language side of the brain. So when we're getting an instruction and and hearing it verbally and interpreting it in our body, that's that's all left brain activity. now, when you visualize something in three dimensions, okay, you can't micromanage that. That's not a sequential thing. You have to grasp it as a whole. That's what your other hemisphere does. That's what your right hemisphere does. And uh, that's why we, I try to make uh, certain that we don't get too left-brainy with people, that we spend uh, a significant amount of time getting them to shift into that uh, realm into that hemisphere where a three-dimensional whole can be grasped uh, in its completeness all at once, and that that mode of functioning gets related to the breathing as well, because the diaphragm is a muscle that creates three-dimensional shape change in both cavities, and and that's the key to understanding. Uh, the process by which we can free all the restricting forces that, that restrict those dimensions. You know, the belly breath that people teach and call it diaphragmatic breathing. It's just one dimension of the breath. You know, it's just one dimension of shape change in, in your cavities. It's, it's the, basically, it's the thoracic cavity getting bigger from top to bottom. You know. But what about the width from side to side? What about the depth from front to back?
0: It seems, Leslie, that in your work you're referring, as we're talking, to various misconceptions out there, whether it's the yoga world or the way that people approach teaching diaphragmatic breathing. And I'm wondering, just because you know our listeners may not know the misconceptions you're pointing to, if you would summarize what you think are the key misconceptions in the way people are taught to relate to the breath.
1: Yeah. Key misconception number one is that there's a right way to do it. Uh, which is why I never use the term proper breathing or correct breathing. Um, there are certainly techniques that can be taught and learned that have a proper way of being executed. Okay, It's important not to confuse the two concepts. There is a proper way to do certain techniques, and that's what we coach people to do. But I'll come back to that in a moment. But it, it's very misleading to give someone the impression whether implicitly or explicitly that this technique they're learning is the right way to breathe this is now the proper way for you to be breathing and you should be doing it all the time that's absurd there is that that that's an impossibility <laughs> you know um because you know we 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 do different things with our body all the time we're in different positions and you know here I am I'm sitting in a chair with my feet up and I'm talking to you and I'm holding the phone with one hand. I'm I'm actually gesticulating with my other hand, okay? These are all breath movements. These are body movements, you know? There's no right way to be breathing when I'm doing this. There's just, the question is, is my system free enough to be doing this without any kind of uh, undue restrictions? So getting it right is a, a mode of thinking and functioning we're always having to pull people out of. Because yoga... And, and the things that we teach, it's not about getting it right. It's about being free. you know. And those are two distinctly different goals, um, primarily because if you want to be free, well, I would say the first thing to be free of is this idea that you have to get it right. Now, that does not in any way um, take away from the fact that, yes, there are certain techniques that we teach, and, yes, there are ways to do these techniques properly um, and correctly so that they're so that they're safe and that they're effective. And yet I would say that the benefit you get from a properly executed breathing technique is not from properly executing the breathing technique. It's that in the process of learning that technique, okay, this new way of breathing, you have to unlearn your old way of breathing. That's where the benefit is. So it's all of the... Um, little bits of tension and habit and all of those things in the system that you have to identify and resolve in order to do this crazy new pattern you're learning that that's what you're after you're after that because once you learn this new pattern this new technique and you're able to do it properly you know then you know it's pretty much served its purpose that's not the right way to breathe you know, And you, what you want to guard against is that becoming a new habit that you have to get out of at some point. And, and so one of these habits, and this would be the second misconception, the first one is that there's a right way to breathe, is that the, that the proper way of breathing is belly breathing. That the diaphragmatic breath is this bulging of the upper belly. That, now,
0: uh, when you're referring to the upper belly, what part of the belly? I want to make sure that we all know what you're talking about here.
1: Well, uh, let's just say from the base of your ribcage to the top of your navel. Okay. And I would say the lower belly would be below the navel. Right?
0: Okay. So you're saying that there are some schools that teach that the proper kind of breathing is breathing from the upper half of your belly.
1: Breathing breathing into the belly. And I wouldn't say some. I would say most. Okay because that's the that's the way the action of the diaphragm is understood uh, in most not just yoga schools but most people who teach breathing, whether it's voice teacher or acting or martial arts or whatever there's this idea that when the diaphragm contracts it is shoving downwards on your the viscera the abdominal viscera in your upper abdominal cavity and causing them to bulge forward. Um, most people who teach this don't suffer from the misconception that it's filling with air, that that's why your belly is bulging. In fact, they don't even say bulging, they say "expanding," which in itself is a misconception, because the abdominal cavity doesn't actually expand in the process of breathing, because it doesn't change volume. It's like a water balloon, um, so it bulges. but that's, you know the detail. Um, a lot of people, though, uh, without you know being corrected, do think that the reason their belly is bulging is because there's air going in there and it certainly isn't. It's going into and out of your lungs. This is a a pressure that's exerted on your abdominal cavity by the diaphragm which can cause this particular type of shape change that is called belly breathing which is equated with diaphragmatic breathing. One of the things that we uh, are and teaching people is that the diaphragm is fully capable of moving the rib cage also. That, yes, it can create a downward, bulging pressure on the upper abdominal cavity, but it can also create a lifting, opening action at the base of the rib cage, which creates chest movement. Now, a lot of people are told that chest movement is not diaphragmatic breathing, that it's some other muscles that are moving the chest. And this creates a very damaging uh, misconception and a dichotomy between um, uh, belly breathing, which is equated with the action of the diaphragm, and chest breathing, which is, you know, people are told is something else and it's not good. <laughs> diaphragmatic breathing is good, which means belly breathing is good. Chest breathing is not diaphragmatic, which is bad, which means chest breathing is bad. And it, it, this, this is kind of a damaging sort of syllogism that gets promoted in the breath training world that we've been doing our best to, uh, to torpedo <laughs> over the last several decades.
0: And in your view, can you tell me what the healthy or freeing relationship to the diaphragm is?
1: Recognizing its uh, three-dimensional potential and uh, making the most of it and getting the hell out of its way. But, you know, you're not going to get me to tell you what proper breathing looks like.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, this idea of getting out of its way in the program, Freeing the Breath... There's a very interesting line that I want to repeat here. I thought this is kind of like the breath koan, in a sense. So here's the line. Is it possible to observe your breath and not control it? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can explain this and and how somebody might work with that idea. Is it possible to observe your breath and not control it?
1: Yeah. First of all, it is. And second of all, it's very difficult. (laughs) So... um me to explain it and then talk yeah. about how to work with that yeah okay uh by way of explanation i would simply say that most of the time uh most people are not aware of their breathing and yet they're breathing and this is why I, why i say thank goodness it's also autonomic um so usually when we're not aware of the breath we're not controlling it or consciously manipulating it in any way okay when we are aware of the breathing it's because something Is happening that requires our attention and our control over the breathing like for example there's a bad smell in the room and you don't want to inhale so deeply because something stinks okay so you instinctively in some ways but certainly consciously as well won't breathe as deeply you know or let's just say you're an actor who needs to learn how to project to the back of the theater you know You need to take control over your breathing mechanism and work out the relationship between those cavities and between your vocal cords and your head spaces and all of that in such a way that you can do that thing. But that takes some conscious training and manipulation and and control. So what I'm saying is, generally speaking, when we're not aware of the breath, we're not controlling it. And when we are aware of the breath, we are controlling it. What almost never happens is becoming aware of the breath and uh, attempting not to control it. Uh, and that's what happens in this sort of meditative, uh, contemplative state um, that I would call a, a, a swadhyaya. Uh, swadhyaya is a term we get from, um, from yoga, particularly from Patanjali, who, who uh, compiled the Yoga Sutras, as this idea that uh, the swa, the self, uh, can be gotten next to. Adhyaya means to get next to. So swajaya means to get next to oneself. It's about self-study. It's about introspection. And it's one of the fundamental legs of the three legs. There's this tripod uh, of, that supports yoga practice uh, in the Yoga Sutra. And this is one of the legs. Um, the other is about control. It's about the things that we can take some control over. It's called tapas. Uh, about changing habits, changing habitual ways of operating. Uh, the third leg is uh, about the things that we don't control. It's about that which is beyond us, uh, beyond our ability to control, beyond uh, our own individual um, uh, volition. Uh, it's called Ishvara Pranitana. So uh, I consider the breath to be, u- to be the ultimate teacher of these principles because, as I said, it's both voluntary and autonomic. And uh, this awareness, this sajjaya, if you will, is uh, what we need to employ to um, understand this and to have the proper attitude towards towards both, towards that which we can control and that which we which we cannot. So that's all of that is packed into that little, you know, koan uh, of can you be aware of your breath and not control it? Or another way to phrase it is you know are you in are you in control of your tendency to want to control your breathing or is your control out of control it's it's a mind fuck there's no way around it and but that's what a koan is you know and eventually uh, the, the whole process shuts down your brain and something else starts happening
0: okay so i'm going to take our conversation to a, a slightly less technical arena let's say i find myself it
1: doesn't get it doesn't get more technical than mind fuckery
0: that's true Leslie, thank there's you. we can
1: go from there. Exactly. exactly.
0: We're going down. Let's say I find myself in a situation where I clearly feel like I'm breathing in a rapid and shallow way. You know, something... And you don't want to be. And I don't want to be. I want to be more calm and more balanced and more centered. What would you suggest in that sort of situation?
1: Okay. There's two things. What you can suggest to somebody when they're in the midst of a kind of a panic attack is very different from what you would suggest to that person when they're not, and you're trying to help them not have them, you know. Um, So just take slow, deep breaths is probably the worst thing you can try to do (laughs) when you're in
0: You're contradicting everything that anyone has ever said about breathing that I know so far. But that's good, Leslie. I like it. So why would you not want to take slow, deep breaths if you found yourself anxious? Because if if you could
1: simply take slow, deep breaths, you wouldn't be having the panic attack in the first place. All right. Uh the the assumption there is that if it is an attack and it is something that is, you know, disturbing um that the pattern has gotten beyond your ability to control it. If you had the ability to control it, you would simply stop it and take slow deep breaths. You know, um the more control you try to seize over that situation, probably the tighter you're going to get and and the more uh, the The pattern is going to to uh, be rooted in place um, what i what I would say is you know at that point, what you need to do is stop trying to take more air into your body it 's totally counterintuitive. Stop trying to breathe deeply, exhale, blow it out, and hold out for as long as you can, and then relax on the inhale that 's basically it. Blow it out. And hold for a moment if you can. It's going to be very difficult. Because everything in your system is screaming for more oxygen. And we equate inhaling with getting more oxygen. But what's probably actually happened at that point is that you have too much oxygen in your bloodstream already. You're hyperventilated. The problem is the oxygen is not getting out of your bloodstream into your body's tissues, particularly your brain, because you have blown off too much CO2 you have released too much carbon dioxide from your system. And it's the CO2 that allows the oxygen to be transported via the hemoglobin into your body's tissues. So what you want to do is exhale, hold. Okay. During that hold, your body is going to start building back up its reserves of carbon dioxide, and you're going to feel less suffocated. It's completely counterintuitive to get more oxygen delivered to your body's tissues by exhaling and holding out rather than trying to inhale, inhale, inhale. Um, So now, again, this is something that people are going to be more able to practice and understand when they're not in the midst of having a panic attack, (laughs) you know. Um, And and yet, if if I encountered someone who's having it, that, that that would be the advice I would give them. Just exhale, 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 you know. Stop struggling to inhale and mm-hmm. when you take care of the exhale the inhale takes care of itself that's one of the sort of aphorisms that that we work with with you know with the breathing
0: mm-hmm. that's interesting when you take care of the exhale the inhale takes care of itself that's interesting and in Most... other
1: words make the space in your body the universal fillet it. it always does it always will you know someone that has a chronic breathing disorder um, does not live in that universe they live in the universe of I need to take this next breath because it's not there for me and it's my effort it's my inhale that's filling me up you know but that's actually not true okay the energy that gets the breath into your body is not in your body at all okay it's outside of your body it's the atmospheric pressure it's the weight of the air molecules that we live inside of which is pretty heavy it's fourteen point seven pounds per square inch at sea level and those molecules want to push their way into your body. All you need to do is make the space. So, you know, that's what, that remember I said earlier, sometimes, you know, just hearing a concept can shift your whole perspective, including your body and your breath. I've had people who've had lifelong breathing disorders. When I explain that to them, you know, and I explain that, you know, the universe has helped them take every single breath they've ever, they've ever taken, whether they recognize it or not and they can just relax and let the universe do its job of filling your body with, with air molecules, uh, you know, you'll know, you have a lot uh, less of a struggle. And you can just see something shift, and they relax. And they finally, for the first time maybe, are trusting that the breath is going to be there for them.
0: Let me see if I understand what you're saying. You have said that space itself, a measurement of space, has weight to it?
1: it's not space, it's air, you know, in space there's no air, so it's not space I'm talking about, I'm talking about atmospheric pressure. We live in a sea of air molecules, you know, we don't notice it because, well, they're there all the time and they're transparent, but they have weight and they're there, you know, uh, we know when there's less of them there, you know, go up to the Rocky Mountains and breathe at uh, 12,000 feet, you recognize right away there's less of that, you know, sea of air pushing down on you, Um and it, it wants to push its way into any available space that it can find. So what we're doing inside our body when we breathe is we're making that space. That's all we do. We make the space, and the universe fills it. You know, it's when we think we're doing the filling, you know, that we get in trouble. And to go back to that tripod of yoga practice, the ishvara pranidhana part, the surrendering to the thing that's bigger than you, you know relates to this idea of being breathed by the universe. There's a, there's a certain surrender to that fact that can happen, which uh, is very transformative once we grasp it. Um, and I've seen it happen over and over again with people with, with, you know, even severe lifelong breathing disorders. Sometimes you just have to give them a friendlier universe to live in, you know, a universe that wants them to breathe that wants the air to come into their body, because that certainly hasn't been their experience for whatever reason. But it, it doesn't change the, the, you know, the the facts of physics, that every breath they've ever taken was, was because, you know, the universe wanted them to have that air in their body. Uh, you know, it's when we start trying to do the job of the universe for it that we get in trouble. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's silly. <laughs> We're not that big. We're not that strong. We're not that powerful. Yeah. We need to surrender to... that and that's you know i don't you know i'm an atheist and you know i can have this conversation very comfortably this is a spiritual conversation you know and 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 you know that's just reality and and grasping it and you know living in it uh there's nothing woo-woo about that it's it's you know basic physics
0: is there something you do, Leslie, in your own life? Let's say you find yourself and you're like, "Wow, I'm not being breathed by the universe. I'm clenching in this way, or holding in this way, or tense in this way, or whatever." What do you do?
1: I listen to my riding instructor and breathe. <laughs> when I'm I ride, I have horses, and you know, uh, I'm I I don't consider myself to be really, really good at it because I know people that are really, really good at it. They've been doing it their whole lives and they're natural, like you know, my riding instructor and um you know here i am this breathing guy right and i do all of this work and i do these cd's and the dvd's and i teach this and i teach that and you know here i am having someone reminding me to breathe it's it's very humbling but you know um yeah uh and, and the other thing about about that is you know uh you're on you're on a 1000 pound animal with the illusion that you're in control of this animal, <laughs> you know. And uh, you're, you're trying to use every resource you have to, you know, make this uh, large animal, which is a prey animal, by the way. You know, you're training them to ignore every instinct they have to do the things you want them to do. Uh, you're going to use every resource at your, at your disposal, including, you know, the illusion that holding your breath is somehow going to help. Um, so that's when I find myself (laughs) needing to remember uh, to breathe and to be able to use my inner thighs and, you know, my pelvic floor and my abdominals uh, in the way I needed to use to communicate with with the horse. You're not controlling the horse. You're communicating with it, and, you know, it doesn't go one way. You have to feel what the horse is doing. You know, you have to be able to feel if it's on the right lead or not or which way it's leaning or, you know, uh, in the case of my horse, you know, uh, is is he on the right lead in the front or in the wrong lead in the back? Because he does that too. You know, you have uh, experienced horse people can feel this through their legs. But you 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 can't be gripping.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's that's my challenge with breathing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It takes it takes a thousand pounds of of prey animal under me to get me to hold my breath. But it works, you know. And uh, you know, I I do my lesson and I get a little better each time. And you know. Um, Uh, there's always something new to be learned there though you that's something you can never master enough even the people who been doing it their whole lives are are always reaching for more it's quite extraordinary really the the thing with horses and you know Mm -hmm. in the classic literature of course they didn't have cars i use a lot of car analogies when i'm teaching about the breath um, but they didn't have that in the old days they talked about horses and chariots and Things like that. So uh, you know the uh, the horse thing goes way back with yoga too, and the ancient teachings.
0: There's one part of our conversation that's kind of niggling at me, which is you know when people move into on... niggling, yeah, when people move to feeling they're in control in some way of their breath or they're breathing in a shallow way, or there's underneath it often deep emotion, deep fear about really letting go in the way you're describing. And I know from your work one-on-one with people on the table, I'm sure you've encountered the depth of people's emotional process around really letting their breath go. And I'm wondering if you can touch on that some, because we've been talking about it kind of lightly and even glibly in a way, and yet there's a lot in that constriction for people.
1: You know, it, it's, it's how we learn to regulate affect. You know, you, you can't, you don't just throw a switch or find the volume control somewhere in your nervous system when you're young that allows you to survive your own internal states. Um, you do it with your breathing. And so when you start changing that, you're basically opening emotional spaces in your system that you learned long ago to modulate uh, and it's a good thing we learn to modulate them it 's not a bad thing you know this is how we survive uh, children who don't learn to regulate affect uh, end up becoming extremely damaged There's lots of studies about all this um, so uh it's all there I mean the breath is the, the is the emotion you can you can you can see the depth of what's going on with someone about. Uh, it's via the the degree of um, uh, control they've erected around it um, and you know everyone who comes in whether it's with a, a back issue or a neck issue or a breathing issue or whatever it is even if they come in saying that they're having a kundalini crisis you know and I, I get those people too um, this is all uh, you know the emotions are an incredibly powerful part of it. Uh, and uh, I'm of the opinion that, um, that our self-protective mechanisms are so robust and so uh, deeply uh, rooted in our own need to survive that people don't let go of tension, that uh, they don't allow themselves to experience emotions that they're not capable of, of integrating for the most part um, that is assuming that the work we're doing is is, is, is is gentle and appropriate to that person you know there are like very aggressive breathing things that some people get into and this goes more into the whole Kundalini crisis thing and these pranayamas and techniques that that sometimes people misapply which can create uh, extreme emotional imbalance you know but for the most part if you're not dabbling in those realms you know the work that i'm suggesting this this awareness uh and this you know shifting around of patterns with an attitude of self-study uh it unveil it unveils things in their own time in their own pace and uh in a way that can be integrated you know And, and they need to be integrated you know it's about boundaries really it's about space and boundaries it's about dissolving some of the internal boundaries we've erected around our own emotional spaces. But we, we can't survive without boundaries. For every internal boundary that we dissolve, we have to erect one that's external. We have to uh, do it in our relationship with, with others and with the world. You know, um, for, every, for every no that we stop saying inside ourselves to our own emotions, there's a no that we have to be willing to say outside to other people. Because now all of a sudden we're, we're vulnerable and we're sensitive to the effects that other people have on us and our relationships have. And, and we need to create that protection you know, out in the world, uh, which is what an adult can do. Is certainly what, not what a child can do. The, the, the children can only erect the internal boundaries. You know? um, and so you know, it is not about dissolving all boundaries. It's about having them live in the right place so that we can function more freely.
0: That's very, very interesting, Leslie. I have to say I've never heard anybody say that, that when we would dissolve internal boundaries, we need to erect external ones. I've never heard anyone say that.
1: Well, it's just, a, it's just, again, it's simple physics. You know, we need boundaries in order to survive. We just need, adults need adult boundaries. <laughs> they need to, you know, um, sort of replace the internal ones that, that uh, they erected as children uh, with more adult ones. You know, I mean, think about the the early relationships we have. You know, uh, with with members of, you know, you, well, let say opposite sex, with people we're attracted to. You know, um, and you know, eventually realize that that certain traits that made them attractive uh, probably are, are uh, traits that uh, people had that we grew up with. You know, <laughs> in other words, you end up replicating your um, family dynamics in these other. Uh, relationships. And and the reason for that is quite simple, you know, that we already have the defense mechanisms in place that can deal with them. These people are familiar (laughs) for that reason, you know. Um, And eventually we catch on and we learn to start saying no to certain types of people, okay, because we don't like how we feel inside when we're around them, because it reminds us of uh, whatever we had to do uh, when we were young, faced with similar sorts of um, Uh, uh, relationships you know and I'm not even I'm not going off the assumption that everyone's upbringing was in a dysfunctional uh, household you know it's just that we're very very sensitive when we're young you know Uh, I often say you know it doesn't matter if you were raised by Ozzy and Harriet or Ozzie Osbourne. you know you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time growing up because you're sensitive and and you learn to create these these boundaries and you have to uh, at a certain point identify that recognize it and uh, replace them with something more functional. Okay. This new agey thing, where it's all about having no boundaries and you know, opening to everything. You know, that's just a recipe for you know, insanity.
0: Now, just a, a couple of final questions for you. We talked previously about the misconceptions that there are about how to free the breath. How is it that so many people out there have it wrong? But you, Leslie Kamenoff, and the people you're training have it right.
1: What's going on with that? I'm smarter than everyone else in the world. No. Um, Actually, I don't think everyone has it wrong. There are some people who do wonderful work who really do understand this. And I happen to know a few of them, people who I consider friends and colleagues. Um, uh, And and, and some of the deeper teachings from the spiritual traditions uh, speak of this. Uh, very beautifully and poetically and symbolically, you know not necessarily explicitly in a way that you would understand upon first uh, hearing or reading um, uh, well there's there's two parts to your question you know why is there so much misconception, and how did how did I come to understand it the way I do?
0: Yeah
1: um, I think there's a lot of misconception because the particularly when it comes to breathing, the deepest principles that govern it are um, really counterintuitive. Uh, and the reason for that goes back to what I was saying earlier about this idea that the universe fills us, you know, and that's really where the energy that that gets the breath into our body is coming from. It's coming from outside of us. You know, we think it's something we're doing. You know, um, like I have a thing on my desk here, okay, and I want to move this thing from here to here, from, from the left side of the desk to the right side of the desk. It's perfectly obvious, you know, how to get that to happen. You know, I see it, I reach over, I grab it, and I move it, you know. Um, And that's how we're accustomed to getting things accomplished. You know, you exert some energy, uh, you know, and you do it. If it's a hard thing, then you exert more energy, and you get it done. The harder the thing, the more energy you exert to get it done, and that's basically what we've learned. Now, if I wanted to get that thing on my desk to move from one side to the other side of the desk, in the same way that my breath works, I would have to go over to the place where I want the thing to be and somehow manage to create a vacuum over there that's strong enough to suck the thing into that space. That's how breathing actually works. But that's not how we get things done. That's not how I rearrange my desk. That's not how I do anything out here in the world. You know, I accomplish things by doing them. But when you use that, way of accomplishing things on your breathing if you try to apply that to your breathing, you get in your own way and you end up fouling yourself up and so this is a very counterintuitive um, situation when it comes to breathing uh, and yet a lot of people uh, don't grasp that because it is counterintuitive uh, even though you know, again in the literature the esoteric literature and uh, the spiritual teachings that have come to us, they all point to this idea you know this idea of, of doing through non doing you know and getting out of your own way. Uh, I just have been trying to make it explicit uh, based on these simple anatomical principles of breathing, and this goes to the second part of the question um, you know i 've been focusing on this stuff for you know three decades now uh, and it's kind of an obsession uh, that never is far from my thoughts or my mind and this so the, the breathing and the principles behind breathing is sort of the filter through which I view just about every issue in my life, whether it's personal or professional, um, and every person I encounter who I work with, uh, professionally certainly, um, it's it's sort of like a lens through which I'm viewing all the things I encounter, uh, and it helps me to sort out uh you know What's really important? You know? Oh, is this something I really have some control over? Oh, is this maybe something that I don't? Maybe I need to surrender to it. You know? And so this, this process of contemplation about all of these things, uh, this swajaya, if you will, has turned into a kind of a samyama, which is another term that we get from the sutras, which is when you bring your powers of concentration and focus uh, to bear on a singular uh, subject or object. For a certain length of time certain things start revealing themselves to you this is this is what they talk about in the third chapter uh, of the yoga sutra um, and so stuff just shows up stuff starts making sense when you're viewing things through a filter like breathing that helps you to sort things out so that's i think the best explanation i can give for how i come up with
0: this stuff which does lead me to my final question, which is, I was curious, what was going on in your life and how you became so obsessed with the breath? <laughs> well,
1: um I didn't have a breathing disorder, uh, at least nothing that manifested, you know, obviously. Um, I was teaching yoga. Uh, I had... Been trained to teach yoga by the uh, Shivananda organization originally way back in 1979, and um, I was beginning to notice that not everyone's body is the same. And even though I was teaching the same class and the same asanas to everybody who came to class, uh, everyone was responding to these practices differently. And I began wondering what it was that you know was underneath this, and I, that's how I initially got interested in anatomy, and. Um, I first started thinking about the breath, in you know, in a deep way, in relation to that. After I was told by my friend Larry Payne, um, who is the one of the founders of the International Association for Yoga Therapists, this was way back in like 1981, I guess, when I was in Los Angeles. Uh, I was told by Larry um, that this one teacher he had encountered in India, uh, who had impressed him the most, um, said that. It's all in the breathing. I mean, that's what he told me about Desikachar's teachings. He was talking about Desikachar. And I asked him, you know, what made his teachings so special, what impressed him, because he had, you know, visited a lot of the top teachers in India, and he said, it's all in the breath. That's all he told me. And it it, it resonated with me for whatever reason. So I began really watching people breathe more carefully, uh, watching myself breathe more carefully when I was practicing and that was the beginning of it. So by the time I met Desikachar, um, I guess six years later, um, in uh, 87, I had already been uh, focusing on it for quite a while. Uh, so that was the beginning of it. What I find encouraging about uh, the work that, that I do and that we do in the yoga world is that um, Everything that I've observed over the past 30, 32 years now in this field um, uh, encourages me because what I've noticed is that the vast majority of the benefit that people get from what we do uh, is from the simplest things that we teach them. And to me, that's wonderful. Yeah. and And by that, I mean the minute you ask a human being to raise their arms over their head and reach for the sky as they inhale and then bend forward and reach down towards the earth as they exhale and then do some other movements that are similarly connected with this process of breathing. In other words, as soon as you ask somebody to move their body and their breath and their mind in a coordinated, integrated way, Magical stuff starts happening. And I think that's what distinguishes yoga from other forms of physical culture, is the breath. I I think it's really at the core of what makes yoga, yoga. And the simple act of asking a human being to coordinate their bodily movements with their breath and their attention, their mind, uh, yields spectacular benefits. And it's so simple. And I find that incredibly encouraging. And it also explains why you don't have to be a super-duper, highly qualified yoga teacher to get uh, pretty great results. All you have to do is ask people to inhale and exhale and move their bodies, and amazing stuff starts unfolding.
0: Wonderful. It's all in the breath. I've been talking with Leslie Kamenoff. He's created a new two-session audio program from Sounds True called Freeing the Breath health, relaxation, and clarity through better breathing. He's not an expert, but he sure does love the breath. Leslie, thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
0: Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.